0: the Bethany Covenant Church Sermon Podcast. We are a multi-generational community in Berlin, Connecticut. Our services are held Sundays at 9.30 a.m., and you can find out more about us at www.bethanycovenant.org. Ahab, son of Omri, began to rule over Israel in the 38th year of King Azza's reign in Judah. He reigned in Samaria 22 years But Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight, even more than any of the kings before him. And as though it were not enough to follow the sinful example of Jeroboam, he married Jezebel, the daughter of King Ethbal of the Sidonians, and began to bow down in worship of Baal. He did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any of the other kings before him. It's kind of a dramatic way to start. Ahab did more to provoke the anger of God than anyone before him in Israel. That's a really bleak way to introduce somebody, but you actually find out in this passage that this is not the first time that's been said. In fact, before this happens over and over and over again. So where are we here? Well, we're going to dive into the book of Kings today. Now, First and Second Kings are actually one book. There's sort of a part one and a part two. And the, the first book begins at the very beginning of King Solomon's reign. King Solomon was the son of the famous King David. And King Solomon spared no expense. He built this temple of epic proportions at the time of Israel's golden age. Uh, he used the finest materials and the finest craftsmen, all for Yahweh, who was the God that had brought them out of Egypt and into the land of Canaan, which is now modern-day Israel. And then on the other side of that, the book of Kings ends at the destruction of that temple as the armies of Babylon cart the people of Israel off into exile. And the people who are hearing this history were the people who were in exile because that's when the book of Kings was written. They're in Babylon hearing about their history in the midst of these shattered dreams. But as we're going to see, God has this ability to take brokenness and shattered dreams and remake them into something beautiful again. Now, sometimes hearing about this is all we really need to understand, but I think more often than not, it's actually helpful to have something to see and touch. I know for me that uh, keeping my hands busy can often keep my mind able to focus on something for a longer period of time, especially leading towards understanding. And so today, to give our hands a chance to get our minds and our hearts working, we are going to actually build some stained glass windows together as part of restoring our chapel. Our creative team's put hard at work. Now... And that is a good thing. Uh, you don't have to work the entire time, but if you do find yourself drifting off at some point, King's is super depressing. It's fine. Um, here's a great way that you can wake up. So any time from now on, it's relatively self-explanatory, but you're just going to be taking these little pieces of glass and just make these stained glass windows beautiful. There's no adhesives or anything. You just set them down. There's a couple of suggested colors. But other than that, have at it. All right. The whole book of Kings is incredibly fast-paced. It documents king after king after king in rapid succession. But then right here as we end chapter 16 and begin chapter 17, the narrative slows way down and instead of just a few highlights, we actually get some longer stories about some of the characters here. Hey, Rory, you want to get us started on the stained glass over here? Well, that's why not. Y'all looking really hesitant about this. I just want to make sure you have the option here. So we meet Ahab, son of Omri, king of the northern kingdom of Israel. Now Israel bordered a number of other nations, but the one that gives them the most trouble at this point is the kingdom of Sidonia, which is up to the north. Not only did Ahab follow the example of Jeroboam, who was a king before him, and and what he was known for was creating a bunch of golden idols for the people to worship in place of Yahweh. But the text says that to create a political ally, Ahab married Jezebel, the daughter of the Sidonian king, Ethbal, and he begins to bow down in worship of Baal, one of the gods of the Sidonians and of the Canaanites. Now get this name. Baal, rider of the storm, God of fertility, God of rain and dew, God of fire, Lord of the heavens. Imagine having that for a title. The forms of worship of a pagan God of fertility are not something that we're going to talk about today. Suffice it today, it's bad. Okay? But for the Sidonians and the Canaanites, it's all about getting this God ball of theirs to make sure that there's enough rain and dew that they could get their crops to grow and that they would have water to drink. See, Canaan was a land that the scriptures say was flowing with milk and honey. It's a land of plenty, but it also, for some reason, lacks groundwater. So instead, people depend on rain and dew in order to get water to drink and for crops to grow. So in essence, we find out that the land that God brought his people to, yes, is a land of abundance, but it's also a land where they have to depend on God for that abundance. And into this political mess walks Elijah. And by walking, I mean he just kind of explodes onto the scene. There's no growing up story. There's no lineage. The only thing we get is the town that he came from. But one day he just shows up in Ahab's court in Samaria and says, As surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, the God that I serve, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. That's it. There's no reason given for this. There's no conditions given. There's not even proof given that he can pull this off. There's only this bold declaration that there's now going to be a drought and only Elijah's the one who can call it off. So then God tells Elijah to leave. And so he wanders off to a brook and he hangs out there for a while. He drinks from the brook. He's fed by these uh, ravens who just keep showing up morning and evening with bread and meat while all the while the rest of the world dries up. Now, eventually, of course, the drought catches up with Elijah's little oasis. And so God sends him north to, of all places, Sidonia, the country where Ahab's wife Jezebel came from, to a town called Zarephath. And he tells him, I've instructed a widow there to feed you. So as has become Elijah's habit he immediately obeys and he sets off and he finds this widow and he asks her for a cup of water. And then as she gets the water, he also says, oh, by the way, could you fix me a loaf of bread also? You know, if you give it a prophet a glass of water, he might ask you for a loaf of bread. And if you ask him, sorry, I have read if you give a mouse a cookie way too many times. (laughs) So here's the thing. The scriptures talk about three groups of people who are particularly vulnerable and marginalized more than others, the foreigners, the widows, and the orphans. In particular, Israel is instructed to care for them. For example, in Deuteronomy, which is the book of the law, God instructs Israel, when you are harvesting your crops and you forget to bring in a bundle of grain from your field, don't go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigners, the orphans, and the widows then the Lord your God will bless you in all you do. And then in this passage, that just refrain just keeps repeating over and over again until, remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt. This is why I am giving you this command. So Elijah is appealing to this widow, who is herself a vulnerable person for hospitality, as he himself is a foreigner in Sidonia. But this is when we find out that she's only got enough flour and oil to make one final meal for her and for her son, who, by the way, is, a, uh, is considered an orphan because he doesn't have a father to provide for him. So now, if you caught it, we have all three types of vulnerable people under one roof. And one of them is asking the others to give up their last meal. But here's the cool bit. She does it. She gives him the water, and she bakes him the bread, and then this miracle happens. The jars that hold the flour and the oil always seem to have enough after that to make bread for the three of them. See, Yahweh is also called God the Father, and the Father has provided for the widow and her son and for the foreigner, what they needed in their time of desperation. Now I don't even have time to go into this other great story when the widow's son dies and then Elijah begs God to revive him and then the child is actually resurrected. It's the first time in scripture this has been documented. But 17 chapters into a book that is all about the centers of power, God shows up not at the temple, not at the palaces, not at the places of power and might, but in a foreign land of the most vulnerable people and provides for them. So about those centers of power, what's going on with Ahab at this point? Well, three years pass and we're still in a drought and God tells Elijah, it's time. Go present yourself to King Ahab. Tell him that I will soon send rain. So Elijah went to appear before Ahab. Now, there's a long, elaborate story about how this happens. But when he finally finds Ahab, Ahab calls him a troublemaker. And then Elijah responds in kind. And he says, I have made no trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. You and your family are the troublemakers, for you have refused to obey the commands of the Lord and have worshipped the images of Baal instead. So now we know. Now, summon all Israel to join me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who are supported by Jezebel. So now we know for sure. The reason that Israel has been under a drought is that Ahab's idol worship, and he's brought in Israel with him. In fact, after Israel is actually gathered on Mount Carmel, the first thing that Elijah does is ask his countrymen and countrywomen, how much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. Now, in this day and age, it was quite common to have a sort of a personal pantheon of gods. You had to have your God of the crops and another God for, let's say, family stuff and gods of the weather and so on and so on and so on. But Elijah here is saying that Yahweh, the God of Israel, and Baal, the God of the Canaanites and the Sidonians, cannot coexist. They're so unlike that they simply just cannot go together. And that Israel, like us, must choose one or the other. And so Elijah proposes this contest of sorts. He says that the prophets of Baal must call on their God, in whatever manner they see fitting, to burn up a sacrifice. And then Elijah, who calls himself the last prophet of Israel, will call on his God to burn up his sacrifice. And whichever God answers, they're going to be the God who's the real God. So while the people of Israel were silent before, now they shout their acclamation. This is a good idea, they say. So just to set the scene here, Mount Carmel is about a 25-mile plateau that's on the border of Sidonia and Israel. It kind of overlooks both sides, and from another direction, you can kind of see the Mediterranean. It's known throughout history as a place of plentiful rain and dew, but on top of that, it's one of the few places that actually has some natural springs. Now, it's really in the territory at this point of the worshipers of Baal. But we also find out that it has an abandoned altar to Yahweh. So Elijah tells the prophets of Baal, you go first. He gives them the home court advantage. We're in March, right? So I have to use basketball terminology. You go first. So there's more of them. Um... They get the first choice of the sacrifice, so they get to pick the better bull is what they're sacrificing. And what's more, Baal, among other things, is called the god of fire. And so if anybody should be able to burn up a sacrifice, it's Baal. So they begin appealing to Baal. They begin dancing and shouting and calling at him, and Elijah just kind of sits back to watch. And they go all day. And at one point, this is is my favorite part. About noontime, Elijah began mocking them. You'll have to shout louder, he scoffed, for surely he is God. Perhaps he's daydreaming. Maybe he's relieving himself. (laughs) He knows where to poke, right? Maybe he's away on a trip or he's asleep and he needs to be wakened. And of course, he just keeps egging them on. And they shout louder and louder, and they dance more and more wildly. At one point, they start cutting themselves to be part of the sacrifice. And nothing happens. There's not even a spark. We're in a drought right now. There's nothing happening. Finally, in the afternoon, Elijah decides to call it. And he calls the people over to the abandoned altar to Yahweh. Now, in contrast to these cavorting Baalites, He calmly takes 12 stones to represent Israel, and he rebuilds the altar using those stones. Then he puts wood on there, and he lays out the bull sacrifice, and then he has the people. These are the Israelite people, remember. Dig a few trenches around the altar, and then he has them take some large jars and 12 times pour water all over the sacrifice till it fills the trenches on the sides. That's kind of an... Odd request in the middle of a drought, if you think about it. But he's asking them to participate in this sacrifice. They are giving up something that's valuable to them to demonstrate their faith. And again, we get this contrast. Instead of the shouting and the dancing, he just calmly prays, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. And as soon as he finishes, there is not even a tiny bit of hesitation. Fire falls from the sky and consumes the sacrifice, the wood, and even the water on the sides of the altar. And I kind of imagine at this point there's this pause as everybody goes, that just happened. And then the plateau explodes with shouts of, The Lord is God! This is a moment of victory. The Sidonian god of fertility and rain and dew and fire is proven to be a fraud. And Elijah instructs Israel to kill the prophets of Baal and rid the land of their idolatry. And then he turns to Ahab and he says, Return now to your home because the rain is coming. And so he does. And it does. And then Ahab gets home and he tells his wife what happened and she sends a message to Elijah. May the gods strike me down and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. And this is why we're here this morning because what happens next is not really what you might expect. We've just heard about Elijah's work. We've seen his obedience, we've seen his faith, we've seen these miracles that God has done through him, a drought, never-ending flour and oil, a child resurrected from death, fire falling down from heaven. And so in the midst of this huge victory, the prophets of Baal are dead, the drought is over, why now does Elijah take off running into the wilderness in fear? So we're in week three of our series, The Art of Restoration, where we're exploring what it looks like to work on those parts of ourself that maybe we've neglected or ignored or even actively avoided. Last week, Pastor Allie talked about how we often neglect or avoid our own inner lives to our detriment. And she gave us some great tools for opening that door to inviting God to transform the soil of our souls into fertile ground for God to work. Now, I'm only slightly jealous that she got to mention the Enneagram first. But another reason that we need to get to know our inner lives is so that we can distinguish our voices from God's voice. Because if you go back and you read through all those three chapters again, It first kind of seems like God is directing most of what happens, but then as you keep reading, you start to see it's almost like Elijah's the one who initiates all this stuff. For example, the text never says that Elijah should show up at the court of Ahab and tell him that there's this drought that's going to happen. He just kind of does. God doesn't say Elijah should ask the widow for bread. He just says, go there and there'll be this widow that you can stay with. And it certainly never says that God directed him to challenge the prophets of Baal to a prophetic duel. Elijah does all this on his own. Now, God does seem to roll with it, which if you think about it, is awfully generous of him. The drought does come. The bread does get baked. The fire does fall. But it's Elijah that starts all of that stuff. God certainly finishes it and yet Jezebel threatens Elijah and he panics and he runs off into the wilderness and then sinks into this deep depression. Now there's a word for this that I'm sure all of you are familiar with. This is called burnout. I think Elijah was convinced that this one big miracle would set everybody straight. The proof's in the fire, right? Who can deny a soaked altar that's ablaze and burned dry in front of everyone? That should settle everything once and for all, right? If only we were able to show the right proof, demonstrate the undeniable evidence, pass the right laws, then everyone would see, right? But not everyone saw. Jezebel certainly didn't. The fight's not over. And his whole worldview shatters. And he sinks into a deep depression. All that work, all that certainty, all that confidence and energy and investment, all that walking, all that running and confrontation. And what he thought was the light at the end of the tunnel ended up being a train barreling towards him. Anybody been there? So Elijah runs deep into the wilderness, as far from civilization as he can possibly get, and he throws himself under this tree, and he says, I've had enough, Lord, and he begs God to let him die, and he passes out. Anybody been there? But instead of death, Elijah wakes up to the smell of fresh bread baking on hot stones and next to it, a jug of fresh water. So he eats and he drinks. He passes out again. And again, the next time he wakes up, there's more bread on these hot stones and there's more water in the jug. And as he eats and drinks, God instructs him to go to a particular cave on Mount Horeb. So off he goes and after 40 days and 40 nights, he arrives there at the cave, and there God asks him a question, Elijah, why are you here? Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Remember at Christmas when we talked about God as the wonderful counselor? This is such a great example of that. See, the first thing God does is he knows that in Elijah's depression, the thing he really needs most right at this particular moment is a meal and a nap. These things can be remarkably healing in and of themselves. And then with a simple question, God helps Elijah just begin to pour out All the stuff that just happened to him. God doesn't judge Elijah. He's not scolding him. He doesn't correct Elijah, even though actually most of the things he just said are wrong. He simply listens. And when Elijah is finished, God tells him to prepare himself because God will be appearing to him outside the cave on the mountain. As Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a sound of a gentle whisper. When God heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave and a voice said, what are you doing here, Elijah? If that sounds sort of familiar, it should. This whole story would sound so familiar to the Israelites hearing this in Babylon in exile. Because there are allusions to the story of Moses everywhere in this text. Mount Horeb has another name, Mount Sinai. In fact, this is the very same cave where Moses received the Ten Commandments. It took Elijah 40 days and 40 nights to get there, much like it took the Israelites 40 years in the wilderness. The ravens brought bread and meat every morning and evening, which is an awful lot like manna and quail in the wilderness. Even Elijah's desire to die is one that Moses expressed multiple times when the people of Israel are whining and complaining in the wilderness, which I'm sure is something no parent has ever identified with. But then Moses experienced God in the wind at the Red Sea. In the pillar of fire that guided Israel through the desert. In an earthquake on the very mountain upon which Elijah is now standing. Except now, the text says that God's not in any of those. We can see that Elijah realizes this because when the wind comes, when the fire comes, when the earthquake comes, he's still inside the cave. But at this gentle whisper, he wraps his cloak around his face and he exits the cave to see God. Now, this is a big moment for Elijah. His entire ministry has been defined by large acts of power and might. And yet, after all of this, God shows him that it wasn't really those moments where God did his best work. And frankly, Most of those moments weren't even God's idea. Rather, it's in these small, quiet, unobtrusive moments where God has been doing his best work. The moments where God provides food in the wilderness, where we're eating bread and drinking water to the sounds of trickling water and the wind in the air where God shows a widow and her orphan son that he cares about people that weren't even really supposed to be his. God's in the pause between the big stuff. See, the relationship with God is one that will always require showing up. It requires our attention. But so often we, like Elijah, want it to be this big, dramatic, obvious moment that nobody can deny that in this moment is the power of God acting where everyone can see it. We want the moments that make paying attention really easy because they're so much more exciting than our everyday lives. And it's not that God never does that. I mean, we have plenty of examples in Scripture of God doing something dramatic and it's actually God's idea. And people are left in awe. But I think more often than not, that's actually what we want. We want God to be in the fire and in the earthquake and the dramatic recovery from illness or the miraculous sum of money that shows up at the right moment or the big worship service that has the best music that always seems to be exactly what we needed slash wanted that day. See, if we're honest, that stuff ends up really being more about us than it does about God. We want excitement. We want to feel something. We want moments of transcendence. But more often than not, God wants to be in those moments where we're actually carrying a cross. More often than not, God's in those moments in between. God's at our side in the quiet stillness. He's present in the ordinary with us in the wandering moments in the wilderness where there is no space and it's even necessary to pay attention to God because that's where we finally recognize our dependence. And that's what happens to Elijah. He flames out hard. The people of Israel have been trying to worship both Yahweh and Baal, two completely diametrically opposed deities who could not coexist together, let alone coexist at the top. But Elijah, too, had more subtly been so focused on the mighty acts of power that he'd missed the quietness of God's presence with him the whole time. There are so many things that compete with our attention. It can be really easy to think about God as one part of a list. Instead of the truth that God is meant to get our whole attention. That everything else is meant to be filtered through that lens. How God sees it is how we should see it. God's not a task to be accomplished. God is a relationship by which everything else is meant to be measured. How we treat others. How we treat ourselves. The sort of work we do. How we spend our time how we use our money, how we speak to one another, how we raise our kids. And the only way that we can do that is making intentional time to spend with God and find out how God actually wants us to live. But even though he'd missed all of this, God does not throw Elijah away. He listens to his rants and his exaggerations and his completely wrong information And then God calmly, gently, and firmly reorients his perspective and he gives him a new purpose. God sends Elijah to anoint several kings and then what's more, he anoints him, he gets him to go and anoint his successor, Elisha. See, part of the reason that Elijah is so burned out is that he thought he had failed everyone. He'd put so much pressure on himself to make Israel faithful again as if that's somehow his role. That when Jezebel pushed back, he thought, that's over, that's it, we're done. The showdown on Mount Carmel was supposed to end the problem, but didn't. But as they say, if you're feeling disillusioned, it means you've had some illusions in the first place. It took actual burnout and the accompanying depression for Elijah to start paying attention. And when he finally does, God gives him the gift of seeing that the story was never meant to end with him. And in fact, it's not even his story. This is God's story. And Elijah gets to play a part. We get to play a part. See, the mission is not over. Over the next couple chapters, in the midst of a hostile culture and wanderings and there's more running, there's more confrontation, Elijah still works with God in these long, quiet, steady moments. And God helps him gently piece himself back together like a shattered window that's made into a beautiful work of stained glass, made from the shattered illusions of his past, as he trains Elisha for his continuing work in the next season. See, this is a cautionary tale for us, because our time can and often does become our idol. There's such pressure to stay busy, to do all the things to fill every little extra second with activity and work, wring the most out of life, right? But if we don't regularly slow down and pay attention to God, if it's up to God to interrupt our busyness, we're missing the whole point of the work in the first place. It's a tale of hope, though, too, because God's not done with us yet. So where is our attention? Let's pray. God, we wait upon you now. Fix our eyes upon you because we are prone to wander from your presence. Lord, we are pulled in so many directions at once. Our distractions are many. But you, Lord, can be our rock, our steady guiding hand. Take Hold of us, God, and keep us close. In your name we pray together. Amen and amen. Would you stand as you are able and join us in song?